the podcast from Belmont Chapel in Exeter, sharing the story, living the life. For more information, go to belmontchapel.org.uk. It's, uh, it's lovely to be with you uh, once again. My name is Paul Cook. I'm one of the leaders here at Belmont, and this morning we're going to be continuing our series in the Gospel of John, um, and we're going to be looking at the second half of John chapter 7, if you'd like to get your Bibles ready. Um, It's really lovely just to be worshipping with you. I'm always so encouraged when I see uh, what I call senior saints who are just living out their lives for God and have been doing that for many, many years. How encouraging that is to those of us who are uh, perhaps in some cases here this morning lots, uh, lots of years younger, but for some of us are kind of getting closer to that. But what an encouragement to see people like Grace and the Harrises uh, and their faith uh, outworking still. Um, Right, so we're going to be thinking about John chapter 7. We're going to be looking at uh, the second half of the chapter. And we're going to be uh, thinking particularly about this this festival of tabernacles that we've been thinking about uh, last week. But I wonder if you, you... Do you remember this? Do you remember the weather that we had last summer? It got incredibly dry, didn't it? I mean, seriously dry. Um, and we had this drought that was declared in the southwest. And, oh my goodness, it was, it was quite worrying. And it's really quite dry at the moment, isn't it? It feels like we should have more rain than we do. So we're beginning to experience what it feels like to live in a dry land or a drier land. And we can imagine, I guess, what it's like to live in Israel, where our Bible reading this morning is situated. We are obviously in the southwest of England, but Israel is a much drier country. And so they understood the preciousness of water. And that's going to be one of our themes this morning, how important and how special and how precious water is. And it's all to do with this festival that we've been thinking about um, over the past couple of weeks, the Festival of Tabernacles. I said last week, Uh, that it was a harvest festival that uh, the Jews kept uh, around about September time. So it's about God's provision uh, for his people. We also said last week that it celebrates the time at which God led his people out of slavery in Egypt and then protected them when they were moving through the desert. Uh, And so here we thought about God's protection in those tabernacles, those shelters, those booths that were used at this time. But there's a third thing that we haven't talked about yet that Tabernacles uh, is all about as well. I needed a P. (laughs) That sounds terrible. (laughs) (laughs) I needed a word beginning with the letter P. Um, And I struggled to find one, but I eventually got there. So here we go. go. It's about pluviosity. (laughs) Pluviosity. Um, It just means raininess. (laughs) It's about water. Festival of Tabernacles. Um, Let me explain that by um, having a think about what um, Jerusalem was like in Jesus' time and how it was used as a a theatre, really, during the Festival of Tabernacles. Uh, And here I do need something that I've written down to remind me what happened. So, Feast of Tabernacles, seven days, if you remember, seven whole days. Um, And it says here that um, it witnessed a water ceremony in which a procession of priests descended to the south border of the city to the Gihon Spring. Okay, and then that spring 
fed down into the Siloam pool. And so the priest would go down with the procession to the Siloam pool and he would have this big gold jug, uh, a pitcher, and he would fill his big gold jug at the Siloam pool. Meanwhile, a choir was all around him and they were chanting the words that we read in the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, with joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. And then they walked the water back up the hill in a formal procession um, and the crowds were following. They were singing psalms. They were carrying those branches that they used to construct the temporary uh, booths that they're in to remind them of the desert and of harvest. And then when they get to the temple, the priest would climb up the steps to the altar and he would pour the water out of his golden jug onto the altar while the crowd circled him and they continued their singing. And they did this every day of the festival. But on the seventh day, they did it seven times. So quite a spectacle in Jerusalem. And the person who told me about this uh, writes, this water ceremony was a plea to God for rain, for pluviosity, since the autumn is a time of threat and drought in Israel. But it was also a source of rich symbolism because in the desert, uh, after freeing his people from slavery in Egypt, God brought water from a rock. If you remember that story in the book of Numbers. And in the ceremony, water was flowing from the rock altar at the temple. And then, of course, there are the Old Testament prophets, Zechariah and Ezekiel, who had visions of rivers flowing from the temple in a miraculous display of God's blessing. And so he concludes, in a drought-stricken land, these were powerful visions of life-giving water flowing from God's life-giving temple. Okay, so that is the background for uh, the second half of John chapter 7 that we're going to be looking at in a moment. Last week, we looked at the first half and we thought about how that spoke about family and how it spoke about discernment. And in this second half, we're going to think about how Jesus brings division. We're also going to think about how Jesus gives the spirit. Okay, that's where we're going. Let's open our Bible, shall we? And um, let's read the verses. So if you've got the Green Church Bible, we're on page 1012, 1013. Otherwise, uh, the words will be up on the screen. Let me just pray before we open God's word together. Father, I thank you so much for this word that you have inspired. I thank you that you've uh, enabled us to get it in our own language and um, thank you that its integrity has been preserved down the centuries. Lord, we thank you that you speak to us through these words, and we pray that you will do that this morning. Holy Spirit, come, take the words which you originally inspired and apply them to our hearts and our minds and our lives, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Okay, John chapter 7, verse 25. Uh, so Jesus has arrived at the Jerusalem uh, temple for the festival uh, of tabernacles. At that point, verse 25, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they are trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly and they're not saying a word to him. 
Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah, the promised one of God? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. Lots of questions going on. Verse 28, then Jesus, still teaching in the temple courts, cried out, yes, you know me and you know where I am from, or at least brackets, you think you do. I am not here on my own authority, but he who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him because I am from him and he sent me. Of course, he's referring to his father, God. At this They tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. That's a phrase that keeps coming up in John. Jesus is in control of the timetable and his hour will come, but it's not here yet. Verse 31, still many in the crowd put their faith in him. They said, when the Messiah comes, will he perform more signs than this man? Chapter 6, feeding of the 5,000, walking on water, a lot of signs going on. 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. They had their own police force in the temple, and the guards are sent to arrest Jesus. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. My father, God, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? There was a Jewish diaspora all around the Mediterranean basin. Is that what Jesus is talking about? Is he going to go there? Verse 36, what did he mean? When he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Lots more questions. Verse 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast. This is that day when that ceremony takes place seven times with the water. That's the day. The last and greatest day of the feast. Jesus stood and he said in a loud voice. Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the spirit, the Holy Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the spirit had not been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. When John talks about Jesus' glorification, he's talking about his death, his resurrection, and his ascension to go back to be at the right hand of the Father in heaven. None of that has happened yet, so the Spirit poured out in the day of Pentecost hasn't happened yet. Verse 40, on hearing his words, some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. They were expecting somebody like Moses to come who would reveal more of God's truth to them. Surely this is this guy, they said. Others said, no, he is actually the Messiah. And still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee, up in the north, that northern backwater of Israel? Does not scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus, 
Uh, sorry, yeah, the town where David lived? And, and of course the answer is yes. That's exactly what the, the scriptures say. And the Gospels of Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But they didn't know this because he'd spent his life growing up in Nazareth. Okay, verse 43. Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the Jewish guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? You had one job. Why didn't you bring him in? Well, no one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. We talked last week, didn't we, about disdainful judgment, looking down on others in judgment. This is a classic example of disdainful judgment. This rabble, what do they know? And then one of their leaders, Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus? Literally where I am standing, back at the beginning of the series, Johnny had this, uh, this, this setup here, didn't he, with Nicodemus and Jesus having that one-to-one conversation from John chapter 3. Here he is back in the story again. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, one of the leaders, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he's been doing? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Well, actually, they've forgotten about Jonah, but that's, that's another story. They didn't know who Jesus was. They didn't understand who Jesus was. Okay, two things to think about today from this passage. Um, we're going to think, first of all, about the fact that Jesus brings division. And you might be thinking, really? Jesus brings division? I thought Jesus was meant to be the Prince of Peace. Isn't that what we celebrate every Christmas? Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6. Absolutely. He is the Prince of Peace. And a bit later in this Gospel of John, he will say, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. He is the person who brings peace. So how is he a person who brings division? And yet he is. He brings division as well. Jesus says it really clearly in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12 and verse 51. He says, do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but division. And we read, didn't we, in the passage just now, the people were divided because of Jesus. Now, actually, both of these things are true. It is not a both and. Sorry, it is a both and. It is not an either or. Jesus is the Prince of Peace, but he also brings division. How is this possible? Well, I'm really grateful to a Bible teacher called Alistair Begg, who wrote a really nice little blog post about this one Christmas uh, entitled, Did Jesus Bring Peace or Division? And his first word is, yes. (laughs) Yes, he did both. He did both. He says this, what Jesus meant when he spoke about bringing division is directly tied to the work that he accomplished in effecting peace. How did Jesus bring peace? How did he effect peace? He did it through the cross, didn't he? The cross is the place, as we've already sung this morning, 
And as Drew and Laura reminded us in our prayers and, and grace, and the Harrises reminded us in their example, Jesus is the place, is the person who in his crucifixion bore the punishment for our sins, took the punishment for our sins so that we could be reconciled with God. This is the place where we experience peace with a holy, just God through the sacrifice of Jesus. But Paul says in the New Testament that this preaching of the cross is going to be a stumbling block to some people. It's going to be foolishness to some people. But for those of us who who believe the cross is the power of God and the wisdom of God. But it is necessarily a source of division in sharing, speaking about and living out the miracle of our reconciliation with God. We will be met with disdain, hostility and judgment, sometimes even from those within our own homes. He is the Prince of Peace. But the means of bringing peace can often become a source of division. Okay, well, this morning we've got um, various different groups in this passage. And I wonder if you spotted them as we went through. just want to ask you a question this morning. Which group do you most clearly identify with? And actually, in one sense, I don't think it matters in a way... In one way, it matters a lot, but in another way, it doesn't really matter which group we identify with, because actually, we are all in exactly the same place when it comes to Jesus. And that place is that we are never, ever, this side of glory, going to be able to experience the fullness of the perfection of Christ. But we're, each and every one of us, if we will allow the the Lord to do this work in our life, we are moving gradually, on a journey, one step at a time, towards the glory and the majesty and the perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it doesn't matter where we are on the journey in one sense, we're all doing the same thing. As long as we're moving in his direction, we're doing the right thing. But here we've got four groups, I think, in this passage. First of all, we've got the no way group. Uh, And maybe some of you this morning are in the no way camp. You're here perhaps because somebody has invited you, but, you know, you're not convinced about Jesus at all. We are so pleased, if that's you, that you're here. Every week we want to have people who absolutely are not Christians journeying with us. Maybe you're in the group that has got lots of questions. How can this be true? How can that be true? I don't. Get it? We've all got questions. Jesus is somebody who's able to take any question that we can throw at him. Maybe we're in the impressed group. Ah, this man's a prophet. We recognize an authority. We recognize a power. We recognize a substance to Jesus. But we're not quite sure yet what that actually means. But that's still a great place to be, isn't it? To be impressed by Jesus. Or maybe we're convinced. He is the Messiah. That's me. Hand up. He is the Messiah. But I still need to make the same journey as everybody else. I still need to make one step at a time, slowly coming closer 
to the Lord who gave his life for me? Who do you identify with this morning? Well, one thing's for sure. Um, we do welcome questions in this church. Um, those who say, what did he mean? Are so welcome. We have an Alpha course that runs and is running at the moment. Um, please keep on praying for the Alpha course. I think the next one, God willing, will be taking place uh, in the autumn. Uh, so please be praying about that. If you really can't wait until the autumn, I'm sure we can arrange to, to chat with you and talk with you about any questions that you might have. Questions are always welcome. But some answers, actually, they, they require a bit of a step of faith in order to get to the answer. You see, Jesus said earlier in this passage, anyone who, verse 17 of chapter 7, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. Sometimes there are some answers that we can't get just through thinking things through and talking. We actually need to take a step. The Bible puts it like this in the Psalms. It says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And I have this picture of going into a restaurant, like a really posh restaurant. And it's one of those restaurants where they've got like a glass wall. And so you can see the Michelin-starred chefs, chefs who are preparing your food. And you can see how fresh and good the produce is. And you can smell the amazing aromas coming out. And you can see the other diners around the restaurant really loving the food that they're being served. But until we pick up our knife and our fork and we get into the food that's in front of us and put it in our mouth, we're not going to know how good it is, are we? And in lots of ways... A relationship with Jesus ultimately is, is, is about that. We have to taste in order to see just how good the Lord is. So questions are important and an important phase for us to go through. But at a point comes, got to take the step to find out just how good Jesus is. Okay, so that was our first thing to think about this morning. Jesus brings division, but he's wanting to bring us closer, all of us, towards his place of reconciliation and peace. But here's the second thing. Jesus gives the spirit. What a beautiful thought that is. Jesus gives the spirit. Can I ask you what you're thirsty for this morning? I'm not talking about tea or coffee after, after the service. What, what is your great motivator this morning as we come in Jesus' presence. Maybe for some people it's, um, it's a desire to, to do well in a particular aspect of life. We've thought this morning about uh, people who've got exams coming up. Maybe you've got a big project at work. Maybe you're, you're, you're thirsty for a quality of relationship with your friends or perhaps in a romantic situation. Or, or maybe... Maybe you've got a burning ambition to do something that you think is going to really complete your life, an experience. We're all thirsty for something. But my experience is that all of those things, there's nothing wrong with any of them, but all of those things ultimately still leave me feeling parched, thirsty, 
As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God, says the psalmist. And ultimately, any desire that we have, I believe, is a reflection of the deep, deep, deep desire that we have to be at one with the Father God who has created us in the first place. And Jesus says this, doesn't he? In verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice in the middle of that big water ceremony, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Come to me and drink. If you're thirsty, come to Jesus and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. That's a bit weird, isn't it? (laughs) Jesus says some puzzling, odd things, doesn't he? Rivers of living water flowing out from inside us. What on earth is he talking about? Well, well. (laughs) Do you remember this lady? Do you remember her? Again, I think it was Johnny and, and Simon who were talking about this lady. The Samaritan woman. John chapter 4, do you remember her? She was in front of her well, uh, and Jesus asked her for a drink, and they had this really mind-blowing conversation together. And Jesus said to her, look, everyone who drinks this water is going to be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And he never explained that in John chapter 4. He just kind of left it hanging there. But here in John chapter 7, we get the explanation. By this, he meant the spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Okay, receiving the Holy Spirit. Um. I think we're going to learn a lot more. I hope and pray we're going to learn a lot more about the Holy Spirit when we get to John chapter 14, 15, and 16. Great chapters of the gospel. But I want to give us a foretaste as we just finish now of of who the Holy Spirit is and of what receiving the Holy Spirit can mean for us. I I could spend like hours talking about what the Bible has to say about the Holy Spirit, but I don't have hours. I've got a couple of minutes. So here's a few things that the Holy Spirit does. And all I want to do is just whet your appetite for the glory that is God's gift of the Holy Spirit. First of all, uh, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the one who gives us assurance that we're God's children. I don't know what your relationship with your parents was like, uh, but God says, I want to be your father. And my Holy Spirit is the one who will absolutely convict you that you are my child. You are a son and a daughter, beloved because of my son, Jesus. The Holy Spirit gives us that assurance. The Holy Spirit is the one who opens our minds so that we are able to know the things of God. Sometimes we need him to do that final step, which enable. well, always we need him to do that final step, which means we step in, we taste, we see that the Lord is good, and we learn the things of God. 
He is the one who cleanses us, who washes us, who makes us right with God. That's why water is such a powerful symbol of the work of the Holy Spirit, because we need cleansing from our sin. We need to be washed clean, and we need to be made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus. But it's the Holy Spirit who brings those benefits to us. And he's the one who gives us the joy that we experience when we know that those things are true. He's the one who pours the love of God into our lives, into our hearts, so that we can then pour our lives and love into those who are around us. He is the one who gives us the gifts that are his to give, not for our benefit, but to build others up as we worship together. And he is the one when words fail us, who intercedes with sighs that are just too deep for words. And finally, he is the one who helps us to confess that Jesus is Lord. When we feel overwhelmed, when we feel afraid, when we feel timid, the Holy Spirit can strengthen us to confess, yes, Jesus is my Lord. And this is what he means to me. How amazing that God gives us his Holy Spirit. Does that sound good? Sounds great to me. Jesus says, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink.